The show today has been brought to you by Al's Quick Stop. Al's Quick Stop is a neighborhood corner store located at 2002 Wall Drive next door to Rudyard's. Stop by Al's for beer, ice, household goods, and amazing fresh Mediterranean and Mexican food. Al's is open from 8 a.m. to midnight, and they do carry Swisher Sweets. Now let's get ready to talk to James Medford. Listo? <laughs> so how long have you lived in Houston from beginning to end? Because I know you're from Arlington, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, so I came to Houston in the fall of 81 okay. to go to Rice. Gotcha. And then I graduated Rice in 85 and got the job at NASA. Uh-huh. And that's... You were I mean, there forever? Yeah, yeah. I was there from 85 until like I took early retirement. Uh-huh. At the beginning of 2013, so almost five years ago. So that's a choice you make, like early retirement is a choice. Yes, yeah, and but it was a choice. But it, the the thing was is that I was only able to retire early because they needed to cut back. Gotcha. And they said that that they were going to allow a limited number of people to retire early. Uh-huh. I couldn't have just said, "Oh, I want to retire early." It had to be offered to me. And were people like fighting over this early retirement? Actually, no. Surprisingly, they wanted um, to stay there. Yeah, there were there, there were people who were eligible. But they couldn't afford to take the early out because they had kids in college, or they had mortgages and that kind of thing. And and so you you take when you when you retire your pension is a lot less than your salary was, and they just said we can't afford to take the cut and pay. But how long does the pension go for? Like forever? Yeah, pensions forever. Okay. Yeah. So which is which is a sweet deal, and I got to stay on the federal health insurance program, which means. I can keep that forever, and it's and it's cheaper than it would be if I were on the open market. So. All right. So, uh, so what you're saying is, if I just never get married, never have kids, right. I have first dibs on early retirement, right? As right. long as like my company has a pension and still going on. And yeah, like, yeah, and it's you know it's federal pension, so it's uh-huh. pretty safe. Yeah, like, as safe as anything can be. Uh huh. So, all right. So let's go back, Arlington, Texas. Right. You grew up with big family, small family. Uh, well, uh. A small-ish. I have two sisters, one who's six years older and mm-hmm. one who's six years younger. Okay. So you're a middle child? Right, middle child. Both parents? Sorry? You grow up with both parents? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. What'd they do? So dad, um, the reason we wound up in Arlington was dad got a job with this company, an aerospace company. It's actually in Grand Prairie. But um, it was, they, they did both defense contract work and they also did aerospace contract so work. uh what decade was this so this was the beginning of the 60s they they, okay. they moved in Ar- to arlington the beginning of 62 and i was born at the end of 62 gotcha. and so dad had the job he was an engineer and then mom just stayed at home uh-huh. with us and uh pretty much a real s- suburban upbringing it was arlington was a small town up until the 50s and then it started to become a bedroom community for dallas and fort worth and that's the and mom and dad were moving there just as it was starting to, to grow. And uh, I was just back there over the weekend. And it's it's a it's it's a big city now, but it doesn't feel like a big city because it's still just essentially a, a suburb. Uh, and was your dad in defense or aviation? or? Well, he did. That? The stuff he did was partly for defense contractors, but also uh, early on they started doing stuff for the space program too, okay. Apollo. 
Did you uh, did you ever go to work with them? No. Well, no, I take that back. Um, <laughs> there, there were some times when they had open house and they would let family come. And, but, you know, it was just sort of a, a bland office space. There wasn't like, you know, there weren't like spaceships and stuff hanging around. It was just sort of a, a bland office space type area. And uh, wasn't they? They couldn't. He he did do some things that were secret that uh-huh. they couldn't show us. Obviously, huh. but, uh, stuff about Russians. I you know Germans, Peru, East Germany, and uh, yeah, and possibly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he never he never got that far with us. But he he um, he did get to do some of the early work on the uh, Apollo astronauts' uh, helmets. They had uh, a. Uh, they called a, a, a face shield. Essentially, it was when they pulled it down across their mask, it was dark and it protected their their eyes from UV rays and that sort of thing. Wow! But uh, I don't think that his company's design wound up being used. But at least he got to, to work wow. on their proposal. Huh? And did he stick to that forever? Well, he he stayed. Yeah, he stayed at that company forever. He retired in '98. And so, yeah, he'd been with them, I don't know, 36 years, something like that, huh. when he retired. Um, but, uh, yeah, he did a lot of stuff. He got to go to Israel at one point. And doing, On, like, defense stuff? It was defense stuff, okay. yeah. So he couldn't tell us why he was uh-huh. going to Israel, but he could Now we know, yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> it's right. quite obvious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were, doing, they were doing some stuff for Israel. Um, but... Uh, it, yeah, it, it, it's it, his his specialty was heat transfer and how to keep things that need to be kept cool uh-huh. when they're in a very hot environment. How do you keep them cool? Yeah, I never liked thermodynamics. Yeah, yeah. He, um, you know, it's funny. There, he did a lot of calculations on paper, and when computers came along, he never really made that transition to computers. He liked to be able to do things on a piece of paper sitting in front of him, and and so it was and he had a he was very very highly intelligent person but he just couldn't make that transition and uh i think around the time he retired there was there was a big push to to get computers in there people yeah uh-huh. get people uh, using computers more and more and i think it was his retirement came at kind of the right time uh-huh. for him so did you want to like get into engineering and aerospace and things like that so when i started at rice one of the reasons i went to school there was because it had a strong engineering program and I knew that I wanted to be probably in mechanical engineering uh-huh. um, and largely because in the 80s you, if you, everybody pretty much said if you have a degree in engineering you'll have a job when uh-huh. you graduate and there, a part was, that, of, was that true though? It was true okay. Yeah, because they say things like that now and that's very not true Right <laughs> Back then it was true and I think a lot of it had to do with, with the Reagan administration and there was a lot of defense spending mm-hmm. going on at the time and so when I so yeah, I get to Rice and I think, okay, I want to major in something where I feel like I'll have a job offer, or at least at least you know choices when I get out of school. And so when I got to my senior year and I started interviewing, a lot of companies would come to the campus and you could sign up for an interview. And I had never really thought about interviewing with NASA before, but then they somebody said, oh hey, NASA's going to do interviews, and I thought, oh wow, that'd be fun. I'll interview with them. Did you not think of it just because it wasn't on your mind, or you thought it was impossible? I didn't. I just it wasn't on my mind. Which is weird because NASA being right here in Houston, you would think that would be like you know like top consideration. But I never really thought about it until they said, oh yeah, they're going to be interviewing on campus. And then I said, well, that'd be fun to interview with them. I don't know what, what kind of a chance I'd have, but it would be fun at least to go talk to them. And so I had the interview, and a um, couple of months later, I got a call from somebody at NASA, and they said, hey, uh, we, we've got the 
the uh, transcript from your interview, and we'd like to have you come down here, come down to Clear Lake, and uh, talk to somebody who who's interested in hiring you. I was like, oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> and so uh, a couple of weeks later, I drove down there and interviewed with the guy who wound up being my first boss. The interview went real well. It was real casual. And But, but what was cool was he took me into mission control. And at the time, um, there was there was not a space shuttle on orbit at the time, but they were doing a simulation where all the flight controllers get to practice doing what they do during a real shuttle flight. And so we sat and watched them for a while. And he said, you know, if you take this job, you'll be doing this someday. And I was like, oh, okay, that might be kind of cool. <laughs> wow. So when you were a kid, did you see like uh, any of the satellites going up on TV or any rocket launchings or anything like oh, that? Oh, yeah. I remember specifically um, the probably the last three Apollo launches – I watched those. Were um, those all successful? I, I'm not yeah. sure with all of them. Oh, yeah. Those were all successful. Yeah. It was um, – I remember we would stay up late some night watching, you know, watching launch on TV. They would be – for whatever reason, they'd launch way late at night and we would – and mom would – dad would let me stay up and watch them. Um, I remember watching the the uh, astronauts walk on the moon. They would show that live. Mm-hmm. And um, – you know, at the time, I didn't really think it was all that remarkable. You know, I just thought, oh, yeah, this is just what happens. People go to the moon and walk on it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know when you're a kid, you're sort of like you, you, you're, you're in the time that you're in and you don't think of it as being any more remarkable than any uh-huh. other time. And uh, like you couldn't remember the nation not having a space program. Right. Exactly. Know? There was always something going on as far as, you know, from my earliest memories. And um, I remember my in fact, my first um, real memory of any of the Apollo missions was Apollo 13. I was in first grade and I had a little transistor radio that I kept by my bed. And I remember them saying the Apollo astronauts were in trouble and they were going to have to turn around and come back. They weren't going to go to the moon. And you know, as a kid, you know, you, you know, that, that was my, my very limited understanding of what was happening. And then two days later I had the radio on and they said, yeah, they came back fine and they're okay. And they were safe. And I was like, Oh, okay, cool. And again, you know, that was my, my first real awareness. I think Apollo 11, I was asleep when they landed and Apollo 12, I don't really have any memory of, but Apollo 13, I remember. Were you a good student in high oh, school? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, you know, Rice is, has always been a right. top notch institution. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's tougher to get into now than it was when I applied back in, in 1980. Do you know, remember how big, like how many students were in the entire? It was small. When I was there, I think there were 2,400 undergraduates and maybe 1,200 grad students, so like total of 3,600. Okay. It was tiny. It's bigger than that now, but it was like a small town. So you lived in Arlington until you went to college, right? Okay. Yeah. So, so, like in high school, what kind of music were you listening to? Who were who were you hanging out with? So, yeah, in high school, um, I hung out. It, it started out hanging out with just my my friends at my high school, Arlington High, and then I started working at Six Flags. Six, is that there's your Six Flags in Arlington? Yeah, Six Flags okay. over Texas. That's the first one. Okay. That was the original Six Flags. Gotcha. It opened before I was born. And I went to work there in uh, in '79 after I turned 16. What were you doing? So, if you've ever been to Disneyland or Disney World, there's a ride called the Jungle Cruise. So, Six Flags had a ride like that. It was just a, a river boat, and the boat held maybe 30 people. And the boat went on a little 10 minute adventure. And you and when you worked there, you were like a captain on a boat, and you told really bad jokes, you know, stupid puns. <laughs> and that's what I did in high school. Was it a dangerous job? Dangerous? Yeah. Because, um, like, you know, out of all the rides, 
I think the water rides are the most dangerous. Yeah, this this there was no real danger here. Gotcha. The, the, um, the mosquito bites was about the limit, uh-huh. but uh, but that was um, that was kind of the, the crowd I hung out with in high school was people that I worked with at Six Flags. Were they weirdos? Yeah, the, working on the riverboat, you were working with people who who didn't mind making telling stupid jokes in front of a crowd of total strangers and you had to be a little weird to do that there was there's no yeah that was kind of the the, the crowd that it attracted um but that was fine with me what do you think those guys are doing right now so what what do you think those guys are doing now I, you know i kept in touch with most of them oh wow you know some of them just went on to to you know ordinary existences guys like you pretty much yeah yeah pretty much yeah <laughs> <laughs> but uh but then i just was in dallas over the weekend and and went to a party at a friend's house and he was one of the people that i worked with cool. back then. and so um you know we pretty well stayed in touch huh. but um but you know in terms of music it's funny um my the same friend, the one in Dallas, Chris. Uh, this is pre-internet. It was really hard to get exposed to to weird music when you were living in suburbia. You, you know, the radio stations were not adventurous at all. And but I had a friend who did listen to uh, Talking Heads and the Clash and and B fifty twos and Devo. And I think he discovered them because we did have this one really cool record store in Arlington called Fantasia. Uh, and it's, it's always the one record store. Yes, it was the one record store, and it was close to our high school. And so uh, we would pop in there sometimes. You ever talk to the guy that worked there? Like, would you, Was he a cool guy? He was a Yeah, he was a cool guy. My friend Steve knew him better than I did. Really he, into Zappa and Beefheart, I'm guessing? I, probably so. <laughs> I, just, I just remember um, anytime we'd go in there, he'd see Steve, my friend, coming, and he'd be like, ah. I have something for you, and it would always be, you know, whatever new cool albums would come out. Uh-huh. And so it was really through my friend Steve that I got turned on to some of the more interesting music coming out in 79, 80, 81. And then I got to Rice, and all of a sudden there were all these other people who were into a lot of the same music too, and it was like, oh, there's other people who listen to the Talking Heads and B-52s. And so um, generally I didn't discover these things on my own. It was usually through friends who had really interesting uh-huh. record collections. Well, no one discovers anything on their own, you know. I mean, except internet kids. Right, yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the first, and this is, so like when I was in high school, I didn't go out to see bands, um, partly because I was in Arlington, and if you wanted to go out to a band, you, you to see a band, you'd go to Dallas, and I knew nothing about Dallas and where to go or anything like that. It was not, it wasn't really easy to find places back then without an internet and having, you know, having lots of cool friends. Yeah, the, the, um, the cork board at the regular store could only go so far. Exactly, you know? right, yeah. Like someone has to go in there to put it on the board for right. you to see it. It's the only way you would know anything was going on, yeah. yeah. So then I got to Rice, and I, I didn't really go out to see bands much when I was in college, partly because I was just too busy. It was it was uh, studying all so the time. So you're actually like studying freshman year? Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. I had to. <laughs> Where did you live? Did you live on campus at I lived, Rice? I lived on campus all four years. Huh. Is yeah. the uh, the place you live still over there? Or did they tear it down? Yeah, oh yeah. It's all, yeah, all of the, the, they have, instead of having frats and sororities, they have a college system where each dormitory is, is a social unit called a, a residential college. Do you have a, a single or a double? My freshman year, I was in a, it was a quad where there were two bedrooms and two guys in each bedroom, and then you shared a living room. I think that's how I lived all four years when I was in school. So, but yeah, I, I get to Rice, and this was just after the Judy's first album came out, you know, the new wave band from Pearland, Texas. And it was played at every party I went to on campus. People were playing that album. Was that Washerama? It was Washerama. Okay. Right. Guyana Punch was yeah. on that. And so, um, 
anyway, they came to Rice to play. And it was at a, you know, party, campus party. And so I just went and said, you know, see what these guys are like. And I remember watching them and just thinking, okay, this is not a traditional band. They're not playing guitars and, you know, all that. They're, the, the, they're, they're playing like beating on pots and pans and bottles and stuff. I think one guy, guy played bass, one guy was on drums, and then David Bean, the singer, was just, you know, holding up a little TV. And uh-huh. <laughs> did, it sound like, did it sound like music, though? Because it's, Yeah. It, it you know it, it it was musical okay but it it was just sort of my first experience with 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 you know oh gee a band doesn't have to be you know two guitarists and guy uh-huh. on drums and and all that it can be something else this is the mid eighties right this was this was beginning of the eighties okay. eighty one gotcha and and they went on to open for Devo and the Talking Heads and the B fifty twos whenever they came through Houston and they could have been big nationally but the lead singer did not want. That. He didn't want that lifestyle. Yeah, I knew. I, I knew that he uh, he was serious about his own education, yeah. and he ended up becoming like a teacher or something. Right, right. Yeah. David did you Bean. Did you know that? Did you know him? I did. No, oh, no. Okay. Um, if they would ever do a reunion tour, I would be there front and center. But, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but I think he he put the kibosh on that a long uh-huh. time ago. He didn't want to do that. So anyway, so that was kind of my it, it, any bands I saw in college were were bands that came to Rice, and uh, so that was kind of limited. So you didn't party much? You no, know, I mean, you know, I went, I went to parties uh-huh. on the campus, but, you know, at Rice, you were just... Any trips to Austin at all? The only trips to Austin were to watch the Rice football team play really? in Austin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you followed rice football? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I mean they were terrible. Uh-huh. They were it was they were in the Southwest Conference so they played UT and A&M and schools like that every year you, you uh-huh. know just a, the best teams, you know. Right, yeah. Back back you know you were not we had no expectation of ever winning any of those games, oh. but we went anyway just cuz it was fun. And you were you know you 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 were there to mock the traditions of the other schools and mm-hmm. and we did. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't imagine you being such a uh, like a normal guy. <laughs> uh, in college, because like you went to Rice, which is a you know cool school yeah. in a decent neighborhood, right? But then I think about it, I was like, yeah, James is a pretty successful guy, and he's you know pretty mature. You're right. So uh, compared to you know, yeah, I actually I was at Rice. I was on an all male drill team. Oh. So we had every year they had women's. Uh, you know the the the, the uh, colleges at Rice would all field. Uh, like football teams and basketball teams and stuff, uh-huh. and so they had what was called powder puff football and the the, the oh they still do that they still do that like in high school right yeah, yeah exactly and they had that at Rice too and so the, the women of, of my dorm had a really good team and somebody said you know since we've we've got this whole thing going on we have women playing football we should have an all male drill team that performs at halftime. And just like you know, you go to Texas high school. Oh, so you're just a powder puff drill guy, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. We were gotcha. we we would go out and do some really cheesy. Uh, high kick routine to some song we did hit me with your best shot um one year and we did beat it by michael jackson one year and so it was just it, it turned into a thing um we actually got invited to play halftime at a rice football game to actually perform at uh-huh. halftime at rice the football legit game. game yeah it was against baylor oh it's a big game too yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah and the, the baylor fans didn't know quite what to make of us given uh-huh. that they you know very conservative baptist school so it's cool. You got that little like, Houston Montos freakiness. Yeah, you know, in yeah. At right. The time it was, and and Rice, you know, I, it was. I mean, yeah, it was lots of smart kids, but I think it was also lots of smart kids who were who were just a little off center. Uh huh. And so I think the Mary Prankers stopped by there. You know, they did back in the sixties. In the sixties, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. They um, uh, Larry McMurtry taught at Rice in the sixties. Is he a 
uh, what was he? He well, Larry McMurtry, who wrote. Um, uh, oh, that's right. I have his book. All my best friends are strangers. Lonesome Dove. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So he he taught at Rice in the '60s, and he knew Ken Kesey, gotcha. uh-huh. who of course wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but he yeah. was also the lead Mary Prankster. Okay, and that's why the Mary Pranksters went to Rice in the '60s. Right. So so your college here is pretty tame. Yeah, for the most part. Just yeah. powder puff uh, drill and uh, right. traveling to see football, but right. you know, good student. Yeah, well, I tell you, you know, Rice, you, you, you go from being a straight A student in high school to being happy if you can make straight Bs at Rice. Uh-huh. It was tough. Yeah, and that's a hard school. So. It was, and it was tough. And I, I, I had to learn how to really study. And what was your major? Mechanical engineering. Okay. Yeah, it was hard. And there were times when I wondered if I'd gotten in over my head a little bit at Rice. It was, uh-huh. it was so tough. But um, ultimately, yeah, you know, I wound up getting the the degree. But freshman year in particular, I was it was a shock. It was like, wow, this place is hard. Did uh, did you graduate with good marks? I, I graduated with a little bit over a three point okay. grade point average. Which, That's really good for Rice. Yeah, 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 and it was good enough to get the job. Yeah, good enough for NASA. NASA. I guess. So. And uh, so at your interview, did they tell you like what position you're interviewing for, or did they just try to get feel you out? In the they were they were just kind of feeling me out at that oh. point. They didn't really tell me that I that I would be working in mission control. They just said we're gonna we'll distribute your resume and and everything around the the center, and we'll see who shows any interest. And it turned out that it was somebody who who was running a group of people who worked in mission control. And um, so I mean I. It wasn't like I had ever aspired to do that, but once I had the interview and I went down there and I talked to them and they said, here's what you could be doing, I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of really exciting. <laughs> so is it, is it like in the movies, you know, like the big screen in front of you and everyone yeah. has a little screen and a phone? Yeah. When I got there, the, the technology was still very much from the 60s. Uh-huh. They, it's changed since I was there, but back it was still – it looked like it did in the 60s, the old school consoles and, gotcha. and everything. It was really um, – it was kind of weird to walk in and go, wow, I've seen this on TV so many times. But it was, yeah, it was like that. Um, and it's it's kind of weird to look back now and realize how primitive the technology was that we were using in the 80s uh, with the space shuttle flying. But that was just, it worked. Uh-huh. You, know, you just made it work. Um, so uh, what what do you remember the day? That you started your job? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was in June of 85. Right. So you graduated in May. Right. And immediately you just... I took about go- a month off All right. before, yeah, to get my, gather up my stuff in Arlington and then and then got started. You, know, you about- got a... Did they give you a house or did they give you housing or... A, a very generic apartment on El Dorado Boulevard in uh-huh. Clear Lake. Was it owned by NASA? It was actually about 20 minutes from NASA. I actually, even then, I wanted to be kind of close to I-45 because I knew I would want to come into the city. And by living real close to 45, I kind of like split the difference. I'd be 20 minutes from work and 25 minutes from downtown Houston. Did any other NASA guys live in your building? Um, I, I remember a few others living in the same apartments, yeah. But uh, the um, people generally who worked there generally tried to live closer to the, to the space center than I did. All right, um, so uh, – Graduated. It took a month off to move and relax a little. I'm guessing. Right. Yeah. Right. So f- first day on the job. Tell mm-hmm. me what happened. You pull up. Yeah. Did you have an ID card already? No, well, yeah. That's the first thing you do is you go through security and they give you a a, a badge. 
and they you go through you have to fill out some forms and stuff and then they call your your boss and say okay he's here he's ready to go and then your boss comes and finds you and takes you back to your office and so so your office is mission control well it's actually was not in mission control it was in a different building um and so we had an office building where we all worked when we were not in mission control and so what he you know he took me to my desk and he, immediately they give you a huge pile of training materials as like books and stuff that you've got to read and um you know he said you know, he had a mentor he assigned a mentor to me to kind of help me learn the ropes but a, most of my first few weeks was spent reading through really dry boring training manuals but the good part was getting to go sit in mission control and watch other people do their thing during simulations so there was kind of some of it was the boring dry training stuff and then the sitting in mission control and watching somebody do the job that i would be doing someday and so it was boredom mixed with excitement gotcha uh and and when how how many days in were you when the the Challenger exploded? So I I started in June of eighty five, and Challenger was in January of eighty six. So uh-huh. about seven months had passed, and in that seven months, I had been in training. I started re- like I said, I was reading all the boring training manuals, and then I started doing other things to get me to to uh, train me for my first job in mission control. And the way it works, you, there's a hierarchy in mission control. When you start, you're down on the bottom rung. And you're, it's kind of like starting out in the mailroom at a corporation. You're doing stuff that's not real important, but it's necessary. Gotcha. Somebody has to do it. And so they, they, they train you to do that real low-level job first. And then as more time goes by, you work your way up to more important positions. And um, so I, I spent that first six months training for that first real low-level position. Uh-huh. And what that was, so the, 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 the group I got assigned to work was responsible for monitoring the um, – Space shuttle hydraulic systems and mechanical systems, and that it, group was in mission control, right? That sitting gr- there. Okay. Well, yeah, during during space shuttle missions, okay. yes, right. And so you, our group, when whenever a shuttle flew, there would be people from our group in mission control monitoring the hydraulic systems and the mechanical systems. And were you like still in an office training for that position one day? Well, that that was so the the day that Challenger happened, I was in mission control. Because that I was, like I said, I spent six months training for that first position. As soon as I got certified, you get a certification whenever you, you finish your training. And when I got certified, they assigned me to work that launch. And it was like a month before the date of the launch. And so that, you know, just by coincidence, that happened to be the launch I got assigned to. Wow. And so, um, so yeah, that was, yeah, January 28th, 1986. And... They, yeah, I was in the back room. It's, so there, when you see Mission Control on TV, what you're seeing is uh, the front room, the main control room. But that's just like the top of the hierarchy of Mission Control. Those are people who've been there for years and they're highly experienced. But what you don't see are the, all these other rooms in the same building that we just call them back rooms. And those are staffed by people who are less experienced, um, but they're, they're there to help the people in the front room assimilate the data and make decisions and all that. And so that was, so yeah, I was working in a back room that morning so uh between the time you show up to work and the time that like the 
uh, shuttle had exploded. Mm-hmm. How, do you remember how many hours that was? It Well, I don't remember exactly what time I got to work that day, but it would have been around 3 in the morning because the, the, the launch had been planned originally for something around 9 in the morning, and generally you'd get there six hours before a launch. So it, it, I know it was in the middle of the night. And you were there? And I, Yeah, I got there around 3 in the morning, and the launch – was delayed somewhat because of other technical problems, and it actually wound up launching a little after 10.30 in the morning, uh, Houston time. And so by the time it the the uh, explosion happened, I'd already been there a good seven and a half hours, give or take. And did you have to stay there for another you know, yeah. seven and a Yeah, we had to stay. I don't think I left the building until about three that afternoon because you had the, once the accident had happened, they had to make sure that everybody turned over everything they were using, their, their notes, their whatever, anything that they were using that morning as evidence in case it was needed. And so um, I think around – it must have been around 3 in the afternoon. They finally said, okay, everybody can – you can leave the building now if you're, if you're finished turning over everything. And uh, by that point, I was I was exhausted. I, you know, I, did you actually drive home, or did you just like sleep? Later? I drove home. I mean, you know, it was you know, like I said, about twenty minutes away. And uh-huh. I, I went home and got in bed, and napped for a little bit, and then uh, got up. And you know, Reagan was went on TV around five in the afternoon, something like that. Did you know, kind of address the nation about the the accident and. And, uh, that was surreal because, you know, th- th- here's this thing that I was, it was my job. I went to work that morning to work on that launch. And now I'm watching the the president on national TV talking about this great tragedy that had just happened. And that was just something I was doing as part of my job that uh-huh. day. It was, it was surreal. It was a weird experience. But did you feel like you, you were like closer to the whole tragedy because uh, yeah, a little bit. It, and, and, it's, it, and it's weird. I can remember even, you know, the, the, every minute of that day after after the explosion, because um, when you're watching, you know, during a launch, you're not looking at the TV. We did have a TV with a video of the launch on it, but you're not looking at that. You are looking at your screens in front of you because those the screens have all of the, the telemetry coming down from the, the, the shuttle that tell you how well your systems are running. So, for example, I was looking at, at things having to do with the hydraulic systems. And we have pressures and temperatures and voltages and things like that. And so we're looking at those screens and we had strip chart recorders that are drawing out patterns and, and stuff. And you, you look at the patterns to make sure everything's looking okay. When you lose the signal from a spacecraft, um, which can happen periodically without there being any kind of an accident, um, the, the data on your screen will stop updating and it'll stick at the last value that it had before you lost the signal so if the pressure you know we'll say the temperature on something was 70 degrees when you lose the signal it'll still say 70 degrees but there'll be a letter s next to it and s stands for static like that means a, like in a black box on a plane yes yeah. you means you're you are no longer getting a signal that and that 70 degrees is the last signal you got before we lost the the, the connection and so what happened was um you know, minute and whatever it was 10 seconds after the launch all of our telemetry went static and that happens sometimes for two or three seconds, just various things can cause, you know, some sort of a corruption of the signal, but it comes back. But this time it didn't come back. And and after about, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 seconds, I'm still not looking at the TV. I'm looking at my screen. And after about 10 or 15 seconds, I hear a guy sitting next to me who was more experienced than I was. I hear him say, what is going on? And I turned and looked at him, and he was looking up at the TV. 
And when I looked, the moment that I looked at the TV, the explosion had happened, obviously. But what was going on was you could see the two solid rocket boosters, the big white pencil-shaped rockets that were on either side of the shuttle. You could see them flying off in some kind of weird, chaotic pattern. And you could see... Some of the, some other things you couldn't tell what they were, but they were they were flying in an arc, and trailing smoke or steam or whatever. And so you, I'm seeing that, and thinking, okay, clearly something's not right here. But not having seen the explosion, I didn't know what had happened. I'm just like, okay, this is this is different. What do we do now? And it took probably another fifteen to twenty seconds after that that we heard the report from Florida that it, it had exploded. And that is, you, you know, I, that was the first time we had we had had astronauts die in in a space flight, and you know we'd had three astronauts killed in the Apollo one fire, but that was on the ground during a test. That was not actually during a space flight, and so, you know, I'm, I'm working at NASA. It's 1986, and they have never had any astronauts die in an actual space flight. And so to hear somebody say, "Yeah, it exploded." And you're watching it on live TV, live signal, as it's falling back to the Atlantic Ocean. And I'm thinking, okay, the astronauts are there somewhere. They're in one of those things falling to the ocean. And that that's, you know, college doesn't prepare you for that. <laughs> you, you, you don't think when you're, you're majoring in, in mechanical engineering in college that this is setting you up to be in mission control watching the death of seven astronauts. And so it was, I think when it really kicked in for me, you know, there's, there's, it's kind of like if people who remember watching the the plane, the second plane go into the towers on 9-11, there's that, that moment of non-reality. This isn't happening. This is a movie. And, you know, so I'm sitting there watching this on my, on the, you know, on the TV in Mission Control. I'm going, this is not happening. I can't, you know, this doesn't happen to us. We don't kill astronauts at NASA. Uh, But, uh, Later that day, when I was uh, driving back to my apartment from Mission Control, um, I had the radio on to one of the local you know, stations, and they were asking people in Houston to turn on their headlights as sort of like a you know a memorial or something. It seems silly now, but that, they were just you know they were just saying hey you know just a way to to uh, to mark what's happened today. And I and I remember just thinking, wow, this isn't just something that happened to me at work today. This is something that happened. To everyone, you know, uh-huh. this is a major news story and it's a big deal. And I, you know, and that was kind of that weird moment where it went from just being a bad thing that happened at work today to a bad thing that happened to everybody today. And, you, you know, it was, it was, it, that's one of those, you know, those days where you look back later and you go, I can't believe that happened. Even now, I can't believe that happened. And I was at work when it happened. <coughs> So, so what was work like, you know, for the next week? Did mm-hmm. st- it was strange because um, that was a Tuesday. On Friday, they had a big memorial service at, at Johnson Space Center, and Reagan came and he spoke. And um, I think, it, you know, for the first two or three days, obviously nobody knew what to do because all the work we had been doing had been assuming there would be space shuttle flights, you know, in the next few months, over the next several months. And eventually uh, there was a big meeting and, and the management came and said, you know, we know that you're all wondering what the future is here and whether you should be looking for other jobs. 
And they said, we, the word from headquarters is we're going to, whatever happened here, it's going to be fixed and we will fly space shuttles again. And we, you know, don't, don't think that you need to go try to find work elsewhere because your job is safe. And I think that people needed to hear that right then, because I think even I, I'm sitting there going, man, do I have to go find another job now? What's going to happen? Um, so it's, it's, it's all kind of a blur that first month after the accident, but eventually we got direction and they said, you know, it's going to be, you know, maybe a year. Nobody knew how long it was going to be until the next launch. And they were saying maybe a year and we're going to have a lot of work to do to try to, um, not, not just fix the problem that happened during the explosion, but fix other things too, that may be wrong with a shuttle, you know, to, to, you know, things that may have been overlooked in the design. Um, and, at the time, we didn't know that it would be two years and eight months until another shuttle launch. But, you know, at that point, everybody was just saying, all right, you know, let's, we'll, we, we have things for everybody to do and we're going to be busy. So don't, you know, don't, don't panic right now. It's, <laughs> we don't need a brain drain. Do you remember them figuring out what, what had gone wrong? Yeah, they figured it out pretty quickly because the, uh, the video, of the launch, they, they always had lots of cameras pointed at the shuttle from lots of different directions. And they had one camera that specifically showed that it was a problem with, with one of the solid rocket boosters. Um, the thing was, was built in segments and at the, at the interface of each segment, there's a seal. It was called an O-ring and the O-ring existed to prevent any hot gas from the fuel, the, the burning fuel from escaping outside the encasement of this solid rocket booster. Well, they saw at launch that there was a puff of black smoke from one of those seals. And then a minute and 10 seconds later, from that same seal, a flame emerged and then kind of worked its way around the circumference of the booster and then ultimately punctured the the big orange external tank, and that was the explosion. Basically, the gasket just blew. And, and- yeah, it was just, it was the hot, you know, that, um, uh, ammonium perchlorate fuel i think that was what it was inside the solid booster that just got out through that seal and that was it all it took um so they knew real fast why it happened but after that there were a lot of part of it it was partly because it was so cold that day but it was also partly a design flaw in the solid rocket boosters and they uh, they said, well, let's let's go look at the rest of the shuttle and find out if there's any other design flaws like that that could potentially lead to something. And that's what we spent a lot of time doing over that next year. Anyway, that's how my career started. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, yeah. So like less than a year until yeah. your first job out of college, you witnessed, right. you know, a, yeah. one of the f- biggest tragedies in, yeah. in 20th century history. Right. Yeah. 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 Right next to JFK and... uh Nine eleven. Yeah, 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 and you know it's funny because um, I'm not old enough to remember JFK. I'm, I was a year old when he was killed, and after Challenger, a lot of people talked about Challenger as being their JFK moment. You know, we were too young. We, we either were too young or we were, we were not even born when JFK was shot. Uh-huh. But we, but Challenger would be that moment for us. So, but anyway, it yeah. After about two and a half years, we got the next shuttle off the pad, and and I was working mission control that morning in that same position, and then I had to work my way up. Were you like on the edge of your seat? Because you know, it's it, I kind of was, and I kind of wasn't. Two years enough time to yeah, yeah, and and we knew we were pretty comfortable that everything had been fixed that needed to be fixed, and and so. Um, it was exciting, but I wasn't particularly nervous about um, it. I um, guess, uh, I guess, depending on where you are in the hierarchy in NASA, yeah, you, you would get more or less nervous, you know? right? I, yeah, I, I know a lot of people in upper management at NASA were probably 
sitting on the edge of their seat that morning. Oh. Because of that, if we had had an accident on that launch, it would have been over. We There would have been no more space shuttle flights. Oh. But uh, but anyway, that one went well. And uh, they wound up, I don't know how many total shuttle launches there were after that, but that was that was 88, and the last shuttle flew in 2011. So they, they did a bunch. And, you know, it was... Columbia was in 2003 and uh and were you at NASA for that you know what were you in Russia I was in Russia for Columbia yeah um so the thing about Columbia I was I was in Russia because at that point we had the International Space Station built and the Russians had their mission control in Moscow and we had ours in Houston and we had NASA consultants who would go work in Moscow in their in their mission control center to keep them. You know, it's kind of a, a sort of part diplomatic, part technical, but it was a way to you know keep keep each other informed of what's going on. And in early '03, I was over there, and the Columbia was in orbit around Earth, but it was not a space station mission. It was not. It didn't go to the space station and dock with it. It was just doing its own thing. So we really didn't have anything to do with that particular, the, the Columbia flight that time. Um, but I was in their mission control on a Saturday. We didn't normally go in on Saturdays, but the Russians were doing something that we needed to be there for. And so I was sitting there late Saturday afternoon, and we got word that the shuttle Columbia had done its deorbit maneuver where they, they fire the engines to slow it down. And that's what brings it down out of earth orbit and in back into the atmosphere. And so anyway, we heard, Oh yeah, the Columbia just did their deorbit maneuver. And I thought, Oh, that's interesting. I kind of even forgot about, you know, hadn't really thought about it very much, but oh, okay, they're coming back. Good. And then about an hour later, um, the uh, space station flight director in Houston called me on the phone. We had a phone where we could call each other. And she called me on the phone and she specific, said... Specifically you? Yeah, specific to me because I was sitting... I was her representative in Moscow. Gotcha. And so I'm sitting there and she calls me and she goes, um, listen, we the Columbia was lost during reentry. They they didn't survive the reentry heating. And I need you to tell the Russians not to say anything to the space station crew there were three people on the space station at the time. It and was really all Russians. No, it was two American astronauts and one Russian. Okay. And she said, please tell the Russians not to say anything to the space station crew because we're going to tell them on a private loop. There's a, they had channels that they could talk to the astronauts without the whole world being able to hear it for usually done for like private family, uh, uh-huh. conferences, that kind of Your thing. One phone call a week or something. Exactly. Right. And so they, they said, we're going to, we're going to tell the, the crew, but we're going to do it on the private loop. Because, you know, it's, they're, they're probably going to have a pretty emotional response to this. And so she said, I need you to go tell the Russians who are working in their, in their flight control room. And I said, well, okay, they're in the middle of something right now. I, can go to, I should wait about maybe 10 minutes to tell them. And she said, no, tell them now. Because we, if they find out, we're afraid they're going to say something to the space station crew. So I went up with an interpreter. We always had interpreters. And I you know, went up and got the attention of the guy who was in charge, their flight director, and said, you know, here's what happened. And, you know, they were asking you not to say anything to the crew. And they said, okay, we won't say anything. Um, and, but what was interesting about that night, because that was in, in Russia, that was, well, let's see, that would have been around five in the afternoon, Russian time, Moscow time. And as as the news got around in Moscow, got around in their in their mission control, 
the Russians started coming to our room. We had a, you know, NASA had its own room there. They started coming to our room to pay their condolences. And, and it was really weird because I grew up in the Cold War. And, you know, we and the Soviets had nuclear-headed missiles pointed at each other, and they were the enemy, and we were the enemy, and all that. So to be sitting in their mission control center and have their engineers, their flight controllers, coming to the room to say, you know, how terribly sorry we are to hear about your astronauts, I mean, that was that was another strange night where I thought, man, what what series of circumstances led me to be here at this moment, <laughs> you know, talking to Russians and having them say how sorry they are about what happened to the Columbia. And I think that's what, what kicked, what, what hit home more than anything was, you know, these are just regular people who are as passionate about putting people into space as we are. And they, you know, the, the, the fact that it was Americans killed on the shuttle to them, it didn't matter. It was just, they were people, you know, and, um, they, they were genuinely sad and genuinely sorry that, that it happened. And, uh, it was, it, it was, I remember going, we finally left there around 11 that night. We had a van that took us back to our hotel. It was like, you know, it's called a hotel, but it was really an apartment building. And, uh, again, you know, riding in that van back to the apartment building and just thinking, you know, when I, when I rode the van to their mission control that afternoon, I had no idea that this sort of thing would be happening, you know, uh-huh. while I was on shift. Um, and, uh, it was, uh, again, you know, one of the surreal things where you think, I don't, this doesn't feel real. I can't believe this really happened. And then you start seeing it on the news and, you know, there it is. Was it, uh, did stuff from, uh, challenger to like sort of come back? It's like, Oh, I remember like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. In fact, um, it's interesting because I remember, uh, they said that the space shuttle flight controllers were had opened up their contingency procedures, and what the contingency procedures were was it was a, a book of, of essentially a checklist of what to do if in case of an accident. Mostly, it, it just ensured that all your data was captured and turned over to the investigative board. And I heard them say, "Yeah, they're working the the." contingency procedures and i thought that's exactly you know took me right back to that morning a challenger because that was the first thing the flight director said when the, when the word came from florida that the challenger had exploded he said all right everybody open up your contingency procedures and i was like i didn't even know what that was because we'd never used them before uh-huh. and i'm like well, what is what are the contingency procedures well we had them on a on a bookshelf right behind us but um so yeah when when they when the the columbia uh flight director was talking about contingency procedures i was like man i remember that i, I know what they're doing right now uh-huh. so anyway i you know and it, it, it's looking back we were it, it, and it's sad to say but we were probably due to have an accident at the time columbia happened because uh-huh. um you just putting something like a, as complex as a space shuttle into earth orbit and bringing it back from earth orbit that is it started to seem routine because it happened over and over again and everything just made, they made it look easy, but it was extraordinarily dangerous. And we met, we were probably lucky that we only had two shuttles lost uh-huh. in all those years. But you know, that's, you know, people say, is space flight ever going to be routine? Is there ever going to be like going to the airport and getting on an airplane? And I'm like, I don't think it will be ever. I just, there's, there's, there's just so much risk involved. And I don't think we're going to get to that place. So how long were you in Russia? 
So I actually made a total of 12 trips to Russia. Oh. So what, what is your first trip? What my year was that? F- my first trip was just for two weeks. There were some, some technical meetings in 96 that a whole bunch of us needed to go to. And so that was for two weeks. But then that was 96. And then in 97, I got a really cool assignment. Um, this was back before we had a space station, but the Russians still had their old Mir space station. You know, Mir is the Russian word for peace. And they had put that in orbit starting in 85, 86. And so starting in the mid-90s, NASA went into an agreement with the Russian space program that they would let an American astronaut live on Mir. Um, and, and the astronauts would take turns. They'd each go for about, I don't know, three months at a time. And so you'd have one person go up there for three months, and then the shuttle would go up and and drop off a new astronaut and take the old one back to Earth. And so they would just do it in like three-month rotations. Well, because we were doing that, they needed to have NASA representatives in their control center in Moscow to be sort of a liaison between the American astronaut and the ground. And um, that started in, I think, 95. I didn't get involved until 97. And the reason I got involved was in 90, early 97, they started having a lot of problems on Mir. They had some breakdowns in some of their equipment that was starting to make NASA nervous about whether we should even be allowing an American astronaut to live up there. Because it really was starting to seem like the, the, the mirror was getting old and, and maybe not safe. And so ultimately they said, let's have one person, and they picked three of us. And they said, we'll, we'll have three people take turns going to Moscow and spending a couple of months at a time just keeping an eye on what's going on with Mir, being aware of, of when they're having problems, what are they doing to fix those problems, um, and, and report back to NASA management. It, we weren't really spies but we we were just sort of there to keep an eye on like things. Like inspectors? Yeah, sort of like inspectors. You can think of it that way. And so... And, and how was their uh, problem-fixing skills? And- ex- the Russians are amazing. You, I think what, what amazed me about the Russians was how much they could do with very little and um, very innovative. And so they had, you know, they were having lots of problems on Mir. Things were definitely starting to break down, but they did an amazing job of, of dealing with the things that came up and um, fixing these things with the, the minimal resources they had. So it, it was an interesting time. So that was, that was like a one-year period from like spring of 97 to spring of 98 when two other people and I took turns going over there to do that. And it... The Russians, as a culture, it takes a while to earn their trust. They, you do not start out. They, when you when you start working with the Russians, they don't start out trusting you. They don't distrust you, but they don't trust you. They're neutral, and you have to earn their trust. And that that can take some time. But once you've earned their trust, all of a sudden it's like they're your best friend. Did you earn their trust eventually? Yes, I did. Yeah. And how long did it take? You know, it depended. I, it, it could be a few months. And how, how did you do it? It's it, You just – the way you did it was – How did you do it? Well, the way I did <laughs> yeah. it. Um, I – first I was humble with them. I You know, I wasn't like, hey, I'm the guy from NASA. You should respect me. I was just like, you know, wow, I'm, I'm amazed at these the Russians. These are people who have been putting – people in space since Yuri Gagarin. And I kind of showed that humility when I was working with them. I never, you know, I never uh, tried to act like I was something big because I was from NASA. I'm just like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm here to learn from you. Um, 
if, if they would ask me to do something for them, like communicate something back to Houston or, or, or help them out with something, whatever it was, you, it, it, they waited to see if you would do it. And if, and if you showed that you would do what you say you were going to do over time, they would learn to trust you. Um, you go out drinking with them? Yes. Uh, a lot? Well, not a lot <laughs> because I would not be here if I had. But, okay. they, um, but, you know, they always celebrated Russian holidays at work. They would, at the end of the day, they'd come in with with bottles of vodka, and you would do rounds of toasts with them, and you'd, you'd shoot vodka. And what you learn about the Russians is that there's no way you can keep up with them. Don't even try, because oh. <laughs> they've been drinking vodka since they were like two, um, <laughs> and they can they can knock it back. And so, you know, we would do like, you know, ceremonial toasts and all that and drink, but after about three shots, I'm like, uh, yeah, no more. <laughs> Can't do this, but but again, that's another way you you sort of start to develop a level of trust with them. If they, if you go hang out and drink vodka with them, and 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 you know you just essentially show them, hey, I'm just a I'm a human. I'm not here for ulterior purposes. I'm here to work with you. <laughs> Over time, you just find they get somebody who used to seem really gruff and distant will suddenly start to seem real friendly, huh. and you're like, wow, I, I broke through. I like how your experience in Russia was literally to to. Uh, pretend or act like you're not a spy because you're not yeah and yeah. then gain their trust <laughs> but the, and, and that's really and it's that's that's an interesting way to put it but that is true you you're there to show them hey i'm not here to to spy on you or to try to take anything away from what y'all are doing here um i'm just here because we need to work together because we're building a space station together and we need to figure out how we're going to do that and you um it it you, the, the breakthrough point when somebody who used to seem kind of unkind would suddenly walk in and invite you to go out to their, their country dacha with them. You're just like, wow, I must've done something right. <laughs> so as a guy that witnessed uh, a, a peacemaking deal, you know, with rockets and science from two enemy countries, right? do you feel that uh, STEM projects and space exploration projects for each country is important to uh you know diplomacy and 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 peace and, oh, and yeah, safety. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um it has to be. <laughs> Otherwise we're going to be gone. Uh, it, it has to be. It was it was weird how quickly once the the Soviet Union collapsed that people started saying, "Hey, we may be, may be working with the Russians." Hmm. And and it's partly for the good of humankind, but it's also partly to keep third world countries from hiring Russian rocket scientists and and uh you know, there's you like to think that any time you do something in space, it's for for only for positive means, but it's there's ulterior motives too. So, so what year did you retire? So 2013. So how? So you'd been at NASA for 30 years. At, at that point, I'd been there 27 and a okay. half. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was. So I just turned 50. I was at that point six years away from being eligible to retire under normal retirement rules. But they, they needed to cut back, and did, they said, okay. Did you, they give you less money? Because Yeah, what, what they did was, you know, I got a pension, but the pension was calculated based on how many years you've worked there gotcha. and how old you are and how much money you were making the last three years you worked. And so because I retired early, that was six years less that I had worked there, and so therefore my, my pension came oh. was smaller, which was fine because I, I could live off of what they were going to pay me, but um, – but it was yeah smaller than it would have been if I, if I'd kept working till I was fifty six. 
but that was okay. So the day you retired and you got in your car、yeah. and drove home, what what were you thinking? I was it was weird. It it really was because I left early. It was around one thirty in the afternoon, and I remember th- driving back up I forty five and thinking, "This is the last time I'm ever going to do this." As as you know, coming home from work, and it was. You, know, it didn't feel real at first, even though I, I had known for four months it was coming. It didn't, still didn't quite feel real.、Um, but I, I drove home, and it was one of those real nice days that you get in January. I tr- changed into shorts and went out for a real long walk. I just like walked for、oh. an hour. Oh, were you still living over here? I was, yeah, yeah,、okay. I, was, I was already living in my place on uh, on uh, Bartlett, and yeah, just went for a real long walk, and it was a beautiful day. And I remember just thinking, wow. This is crazy. I, I got to stop working this at this point in my life.、Um, it took it, it took a little time for that to sink in too. Did you go to Grand Prize that night? I did go to Grand Prize that night. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I had、uh, some some friends came and bought me Sazeracs. And <laughs> I remember I remember when Sazeracs were the thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. That was it was a thing that night. And then the next day, I did something that I had said I've been doing I, I, for years. I'd said I will do this. Whenever I get to stop working, and that was I started reading Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon,、uh-huh. and it was weird because、um, that day, that first day, was the let's see, that was two thousand three. That was the tenth anniversary of the day that we lost the Columbia, and so the Houston Chronicle had a big story in the in the paper that day about the anniversary, and it, and it, they were talking about the people in East Texas who. Own the land where a lot of the debris came down, like around Nacogdoches, and a lot of them who heard the debris coming down, they described it as making a whistling, shrieking kind of sound, you know, like an incoming mortar, the,、yeah. the whistling sound. They said that's what it sounded like, and I, th- I thought, man, I'd forgotten that part of it, and kind of, you know, it was weird reading about it again. So I finished reading that article, and I open up Gravity's Rainbow, and the first sentence in Gravity's Rainbow is, "A screaming comes across the sky." I had to close the book because <laughs> I was like, "Oh shit, that's too weird to to read that right after reading that article." But and how long did it take for you to finish this? It took me two months、okay. to get through that book. It it's is it's not, not a long time. Honestly, it was for, yeah, you know. you know, and I would read like fifty pages and then put it away for a week and then pick it up again and read fifty、oh. pages. It's um, it is it is genuinely probably the most difficult book I've ever read. I still can't tell you. Probably eighty percent of what happened in it,、uh. <laughs> but but I'm glad I read it just so I can say I read it. So that was James Medford, my friend, my drinking buddy, my neighbor, just all around 